Welcome, everyone. Um, it's Let's Talk It Over. It's our second show tonight. And um, once again, um, I feel honored to be able to chair a conversation with uh, Roger Waters, Brian Eno, Daniel Makova, and Yala Shamas. Um, you can follow us as usual on YouTube, but also on, on Facebook. And um, feel free to leave comments, uh, click like, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, we're here tonight to talk about Palestine um, and what's happening on the ground in Palestine. And we're actually going to focus on the concept of Israeli apartheid. Israeli apartheid week is actually, uh, was actually sort of actually took place about two or three weeks ago. And it's been going on for, for many years now. But um, I wanted to start with um, Daniel Makova, who is the founder of Lawyers for Palestinian Human Rights, to explain to us what Israeli apartheid really means and to tell us that it's actually more than a slogan. Sure. Thank you very much, Frank, and thank you for inviting me to take part in this uh, broadcast. So, simply, the crime of apartheid means inhumane acts of the kind that I'm going to be describing in a minute, um, committed in the context of an institutionalized regime of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over any other racial group and committed with the intention of maintaining that regime. So that is the crime of apartheid. I've just read the definition from the Rome Statute. It appears in a very important list of crimes in Article 7 of the Rome Statute, which are part of a group of crimes called Crimes Against Humanity. And I think it's really important not to get, um, to forget that the constituent elements that make up the crime of Israeli apartheid include a series of extremely serious human rights violations in their own right. So we're talking about acts of murder, acts of enslavement, deportation or forcible transfer of populations, imprisonment or other severe deprivation of physical liberty, torture, rape, sexual violence, persecution, which is in itself a crime, an important crime which the Palestinians have, there's a, a huge amount of evidence that they are victims of the international crime of persecution, which is where any identifiable group or collectively on political, racial, national, ethnic, uh, cultural, religious grounds um, that are universally recognized as um, interfering with that in an impermissible way um, and in connection with the kind of acts that I've described earlier. So what we're talking about in the context of an apartheid regime is where these become institutionalized acts, inhumane acts, and where there's a racial group clearly a racial group element. So in the context of Israel, Palestine, what are we talking about? Well, uh, the Russell Tribunal, uh, whose findings I'm going to summarise when I'm giving this part of the, the, the chat, really, are, are vital for any person who wants to educate themselves. And of course, there have been a series of reports on Israeli apartheid both before and since the Russell Tribunal met in Cape Town over a decade ago, and Roger was on the jury and, and, and reached findings um, with the other jurors. So that's the starting point for this discussion, uh, that finding. So we looked at the racial groups issue and we found that the concept of racial groups is a, is a, is a sociological construct um, as much as anything else. And that there's clearly you know, authoritative um, writing on that and that you can easily identify Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs as distinct racial groups in the, um, as a matter of law. And so what are the individual acts that we say uh, are the inhuman acts of apartheid in the, in the Israel-Palestine context? Well, I'll give a few examples that need to be better known and understood by those listening and by us as kind of advocates on Palestinian issues, which are the widespread deprivation of Palestinian life through military incursions, targeted killings, the use of lethal force against demonstrators, which the March of Return is an example of where that has, has happened, but there are many more. 
torture and ill treatment of Palestinians in the context of a wide, of widespread deprivation of liberty through policies of arbitrary arrest and administrative detention without charge. These are the daily lives of West Bank Palestinians and Gazans who get um, uh, captured and, and uh, taken into custody. But this is daily life and that we have a huge amount of evidence of that and we need to keep on telling the public about it. <coughs> Excuse me. Systematic human rights violations that preclude Palestinian development. That's the seizure of their economic assets, um, a whole range of interferences with the rights of the Palestinian economy. Then the civil and political rights of Palestinians, including rights to free movement, residence, freedom of opinion and association, these are all severely curtailed because if you express views of the kind that we're talking about now, you, you face enormous risks of, as a Palestinian speaking up on a daily basis. Um, and then um, obviously discriminatory housing policies, um, discrimination in the spheres of education, health and housing. And you have to pause and say, as the tribunal found, we're not talking about Palestinians who are under military occupation alone. We're talking about Palestinians who live under any form of Israeli rule or jurisdiction. And the, the casebook of the um, human rights organizations, Adala, which fights primarily inside the Green Line, will show you case upon case of discrimination against Israeli Arabs. So finally, the last constituent element, a systematic and institutionalized regime. So these inhuman acts don't occur in some kind of random or isolated way. We have law after law after law and regulation in the occupied territories after regulation and a regime which instills day-to-day hafqadah. -day, Israelis, uh, Jews have a word for it. It's separation. It is apartheid. It's hafqadah. And they make sure that that is um, carried out through the laws. And the Jewish Nation State Act is, is one of the latest. But if, again, you look at the Adala casebook, we have um, last year, the year before last, sorry, in 2019, the um, UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, CURD, issued a report in which they went through a series of domestic Israeli laws which instill Israeli apartheid inside the Green Line. Please educate yourselves about what those laws are. I'll just name a couple. The Admission Committee's law, the Family Reunification Ban Law, the Breach of Loyalty Law. These are all directed at an institutionalized system whereby Palestinian Arabs inside Israel are discriminated against in an institutional way. This isn't, this isn't an accident. This isn't racism of the kind that exists in a number of societies because it seems fully institutionalized. Some countries mm -hmm. you will find that apart from Israel. China arguably in parts in relation to some of its minorities, Myanmar in relation to the Rohingya. So we're not talking about uniquely Israeli apartheid, but Israeli apartheid has all the attributes I've just explained. Okay. I think that's probably enough by way of introduction from me. Mm. I mean, I think it was, it was important to, to set up the, the scene, but the problem we have, I think, and I mean, and Roger and Brian can attest to that, is that um, it's, it's, it's obvious when listening to you that it can apply to, to Israel and, um, and Palestine, but when you say it, uh, like Roger's, you know, Roger and Brian have said you know, for the last few years, you get... Um, you get attacked. For example, like Yanis Varoufakis, who is also part of the show, tweeted, I think last week, you know, join us next Monday for a show about Israeli apartheid. And I checked the replies, like on, you know, the comments on his tweets. And a lot of them were, you're obsessed. You're obsessed with Israel. You, you bunch of lefties are obsessed with Israel. So I, I, I want to I ask Brian or, or Roger, why, why are you obsessed with Israel? I don't know who yeah, wants Brian. to start. <laughs> yeah, Brian's going to have this one. He's muted. He's unmuted. Yeah, I'm unmuted now. Um, well, first of all, Israel wants to be seen as part of the community of Western nations. So it wants to claim that it holds itself to the same moral standards that, for instance, the countries of the EU do. Um, well, would we allow any other nation in Europe to behave in the way that Israel is? Suppose that Belgium decided that, for example, that all the French speakers in Belgium 
should be a secondary nation, a secondary group of people, and that suddenly there were different rules for them. For instance, they weren't tried in civil courts anymore, but in military courts, which is the case in Israel with the Palestinians, for example. Um, there's a different legal system for them, effectively. Um, we simply wouldn't accept that. And so I don't really think it's obsessive to say that shouldn't be the case in Israel either. You know, we we have a right to say that this is not an issue to do with being Jewish or anything like that. It's an issue of human rights, as Roger always reminds us. It's It's a human rights issue. And it's a human rights issue that we are quite intimately involved in, actually, because, you know, part of the history of Israel is is of British intervention and of the British sort of setting up a system that in many ways still obtains today. And, of course, they're very big trading partners for us. We're, so we're happily selling weapons to Israel. And we have to ask, what are those weapons in the service of? And it's quite clear to me that they're in the service of um, a system that any person here who understood it would object to. Of course, the fact is that very few people know about the what happens inside Israel. And very often when they find out, they're quite shocked to discover, for example, that um, Palestinians don't have the same water rights as, as Israelis do. Um, you know, this all of these inconsistencies um, from from housing to legal uh, systems to education to the right to travel, the ability to move freely and so on and so on. Things that we take absolutely for granted here are not taken for granted in Israel. And for half the population, they are not the case. So perhaps I'll stop there. I, I have more to say about this but thanks right we've got we've got more time but thank you uh, roger you i mean that was the point of the tribunal right the russell tribunal was about saying this is apartheid but we are also guilty because in a way the, what, what our countries are doing is aiding and abetting a crime and and you've been sort of talking about this and screaming this out loud including in your concerts concerts for many years now right uh, yeah, but uh, hi, Daniel. We haven't met before. Diala, I'm dying to hear what you have to say. Very nice to meet you. We haven't met either. Uh, I actually wasn't there in Cape Town. I didn't go, I wasn't on a Russell Tribunal um, jury until 2012 in New York. So, um, having said that, I'm very proud to have been on one ever. And, and in fact, I went to Brussels for the next one, the, the kind of follow-up deal that we had in Brussels a couple of years later. Um, yeah, um, I'm, I'm sort of um, recovering from this being an hour later than I thought it was going to be. As Frank will tell you, I got all ready for it. I put on my fucking coat, I walked down the pub, I pushed open the door of the public bar, I went and sat on my usual stool, and I went, Fred, to the barman, where is everyone? He said, you were an hour early, mate. And so I'm, I'm slightly yeah. discombobulated by that. But um, what would we do if the Belgians did it? Well, it would depend entirely, Brian, as you well know, on whether it suited us or not. And when I say us... I'm not talking about us. I'm not talking about the people of Great Britain. It would depend entirely on whether it suited um, Metro Vickers. They don't exist anymore. But some engineering company who makes bombs or anybody, and in consequence, through them exerting their power, the Tory government, it depends entirely on whether it suits them. Well, it happens to suit the current government of the United Kingdom, that the, the Flemish-speaking people of Belgium are not in control of the French-speaking people. But if they were, we wouldn't give a shit about the French-speaking people. That's not what it's about. It's about, it's about economic and political convenience. And it is convenient for our governments in the West, notably the government of the United States and the UK and France. In fact, all of them to go, ooh, no, we can't, let's not call that apartheid because it's not convenient to us at the moment. 
you know. And also, also we wander around with an enormous burden, the burden of the Holocaust on our shoulders, and it makes it impossible for us to speak truth about Israel now because we're not allowed to because we'll carry an enormous burden of guilt you know and and so that's why we don't and when and when brian was saying about um, they don't have any freedom all those rights and things this is, this is not just true of and i know it's we i know they're not like circumstances but there's no freedom of speech in england right what do you think all this bullshit that's going on about the British Labour Party is all about? With Jewish voices for Labour being silenced one after another, excluded on the basis of no evidence, given no opportunity. I was just watching the beginning of a um, documentary about Jackie Walker. It's called Witch Hunt. I actually watched seven minutes of it and I went, I'm late for the pub. And so I came dashing down here. And whew, thank goodness you're here. Otherwise, I'd go home again. But and but I look forward to watching the rest of the story about the witch hunt, Jackie Wall. But in England, we people are not allowed to speak about Israel. Members of the Labour Party, Jewish members of the Labour Party, fifty years people have been in the Labour Party defending the working class and defending human rights all over the world, irrespective of people's race, religion, nationality, blah, 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 anything. Are they allowed to defend the Palestinians? Oh, no, 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 we draw the line. Earlier mm. today, again, I was watching a um, one of these, a Zoom meeting, and it was um, Haymarket Books trying to sell um, Mark Lamont Hill and... Pritchke, I've never got his name. Lovely man, lovely, lovely, lovely Jewish academic. And there, there were those two who wrote the book, and then there was Nora Erekat, one of our great heroines as well. And it was a fantastic, really, really beautiful program. Obviously, the book is hugely worth reading, and I will read it. Um, so the word is out there. Okay, and I am assuming that anyone who has tuned into this Zoom, this Zoom thing already knows, with all due respect to Daniel, everything that Daniel's told us, because we all know it. We all know it to be absolutely the truth of the matter. We don't need to discuss it. We know all about the history of Palestine since the beginning of the 19th century. Well, certainly the last quarter of the 19th century and everything that happened in the 20th century and blah. So I don't, I'm rambling on a bit, but um, it, what, 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 what interests me and why I watch things with such hawkish uh, concern, I perch on the top of my pine tree waiting for something that I can swoop down on consume. And the things that I want to consume are little nuggets of what do we do? This is, this is, and that, and we're doing it. This is us doing it now. And clearly what we do is try and increase the size of the choir. All these people out there in Zoom land who are watching us, who are already in the choir, because apart from, you know, a few spies from the Ministry of Strategic Affairs or Mark Revgev. Mark Revgev's probably watching us now. No, he's not because he's entirely secure in his, um, you know, belief that he's inviolate or he gives that impression whenever you hear the prick speak about anything. All right, I'll stop. I want to hear what Diala has got to say. Yeah, yeah. I, Everything I, in the world. I, I was, I was going to go to muted. I'll go. I was going to go. You go. So you go, Jella. I mean, Roger said, what do we do? And you are uh, an attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights. You're Palestinian. You're actually in Jerusalem now. Um, and that's also the idea of us talking. It's not about just talking. It's about what do we do? And apartheid is a legal concept. You're, you're an attorney. You're fighting many legal battles in, in the U.S. in this regard. So, yeah, just... Tell us about what you do. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me. And I have to say, um, it's kind of awesome to be on a, on a webinar 
with um, Roger and Brian. I'm a little bit starstruck, so I'm gonna keep try to keep it together. Um, and Daniel, of course, the celebrity in the legal world. Um, but this has definitely already started off being way more interesting than any of the legal panels I usually am on. So thank you. Um, just to pick up on on the the themes here of of um, what happens when we try to even utter the word of apartheid, or not even the word of apartheid, but any of the constitutive elements of apartheid that Daniel was laying out, right? The, the kind of backlash that Palestinians primarily, but also their supporters experience the moment that they uh, level uh, the slightest criticism of Israeli government policies, um, or not even criticism of policies, even just talking about um, sort of the evident truths um, or what their own obligations might be, right? The kind of backlash we see is, is enormous. Um, and so, as, as you noted, I'm an attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights in New York. I first thought that when I would start doing and engaging in this human rights practice, um, I would be doing accountability work. I would be um, talking about the Palestinian experience, raising uh, litigation cases on behalf of Palestinians, bringing you know accountability to um, to to uh, to the sort of uh, to Israeli actors, and yet I find that my colleagues and I find that most of our time has actually unfortunately been dedicated to um, to supporting those who are being silenced by um, by by this campaign to essentially shut down any kind of criticism of um, of Israeli practices and policies. So that is still important work. It's frustrating work, but it is important work. And my theory of change, you know, I think everybody has a different role, but as a lawyer, as a, a lawyer who uh, wants to be in support of movements, um, I know that we're not going to be able to shift the tides to the courts but there's incredible work that's happening on the ground by social justice movements, anti-racism movements in the United States, in Europe, and of course in Palestine. And they are being completely stifled and muzzled by some of these actors that Roger mentioned, the Ministry of Strategic Affairs, um, and the many organizations, private organizations that sort of carry their mission in the US and in Europe. And our work is to try to create some space for them to be able to breathe and do the very important work of base building and public education. Um, so what that's looked like for us has been uh, my colleague Maria LaHood has spent nine years defending a small food cooperative in Olympia that were sued on sort of procedural grounds after they took a decision to boycott Israeli settlement goods. Nine years of litigation, right? So the idea of these efforts through the courts has been to extract the cost. In, uh, in Olympia in Washington, oh my, yes. Okay. It's in the, um, in the U.S. We represent Students for Justice in Palestine um, in a lawsuit against Fordham University in New York because the university refused to let them organize on campus. Um, and so this idea of constantly having to push back against these tides is like a really important one. But of course, it's not enough, right? We don't want to be constantly on the defensive. And so what we're trying to think about is how do we um, how do we flip the script, right? How, would, how do we take this position of being on the defensive and remind people who this is about, what this is about, bring the Palestinian perspective back in? And of course, I've been giving examples of what's happening in the U.S., but let's not forget that Palestinian civil society organizations here on the ground in Palestine are really bearing the brunt of not just um, litigation in Israeli courts, which, you know, it happens all the time, but of, like military incursions into their offices and the arrest of their employees. So that's just a, a real live reality that's, that's also important to kind of reference. But I just want to give one example of this kind of idea of how we might want to try to flip the script. Um, and this is an example of a case that I worked on involving Airbnb. So I think as people might be familiar with Airbnb, the company had taken a decision after a lot of really incredible movement organizing Palestinian um, human rights groups, pushing them to sort of say, at the very least, don't be complicit in uh, war crimes, don't be complicit in the illegal Israeli settlement enterprise. Don't allow Israeli settlers to list their illegal properties, illegally acquired properties on your platform. 
And so in 2019, they actually decided that they would remove 200 or so properties from their platform. And immediately, they were sued in a U.S. court, in U.S. federal court. And the claim that the settlers who sued them were making was that they were being discriminated against, and they were bringing this lawsuit under U.S. civil rights law. They were saying that they were that Airbnb was discriminating against them under the Fair Housing Act, which is the law that was passed in order to protect primarily Black Americans from being um, discriminated against when they try to rent or purchase a property in the U.S., a really important civil rights statute. And they were flipping this, completely kind of gaslighting the court and the world, um, and sort of saying that they, these settlers, were the victims of, of a civil rights violation. Um, and they were sort of seeking damages. And so... If you looked at who was actually suing, these were not just any settlers. Um, they were some of the leaders. Some, you know, uh, they were, you know, I mean, prominent settlers um, who were directly involved in uh, the unlawful appropriation of property and essentially stealing Palestinian lands. And so we thought, what can we do in a situation? Airbnb has to defend against this lawsuit. Um, but like, there's nowhere, nowhere in the complaint do you even see Palestinians being referenced. It's like we were completely written out of the story. The story was only one between this company that was discriminated against, you know, Jewish Israeli settlers. So we found the Palestinian landowners who actually owned the property that these um, Israeli settler properties were on, and they intervened in the lawsuit and they said, hey, you know, this, this is, you can't go forward to the court. You can't go forward and adjudicate this case without hearing our side of the story. So they sought an intervention, essentially. And through that intervention, we, we told the court about the settlement enterprise, about the unlawful appropriation of property, about the, the transfer, the forced transfer of the Palestinian civilian populations from their lands. We told the story of our clients, the village of Janoud, the village of Anya Brud. And, um, and you know, our clients had the deeds of the lands that these settlers were now trying to rent on their property. So it was, it was pretty powerful. So this is sort of an example of how we always have to be finding ways to not let ourselves be distracted by these kinds of practices. And how do we do it? I just gave you an example of how we try to do it through the courts, but I would well, love to hear how. <laughs> that's great. That's a great, great simple example. Sorry, I'm sorry I interrupted you. But we are down the pub, so we're allowed to interrupt, I think. So, <laughs> yes. so, yeah, channeling funds into creating precedent mm -hmm. in the lawfare that surrounds us all constantly every day of our life, if we're interested in this. You're, are you with Palestine Legal? We were very closely with Palestine Legal. Yes, it's an excellent organization. Yeah, okay, good. Um, yeah, Finish I'm, the story. I'm, sorry, go on. I'm very good with Dima Khalidi, so I know. Sorry, who was that interrupting? That was me. Good. I just said, could I hear the end of Diala's story? Yeah. <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't ask. The end isn't so great because, um, and again, this is, reminds us of like sort of this ongoing, you know, it's a, it's, it's a long struggle. But um, Airbnb caved. Airbnb caved not, not because there was any legal merit to the completely meritless lawsuit that was brought against them, but because there was such enormous political pressure exerted on the company. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, our intervention was moot, um, kind of no longer alive. Um, the court never kind of ruled. But there was still kind of value in the process. And I can tell you that the settlers who walked themselves into court thinking that they would never have any, they would never experience any kinds of consequences, you know, hadn't been expecting there to be any kind of pushback. And, and that's part of the problem with the reality that we live in. Um, the U.S. certainly, and I think most European states, have communicated very clearly to, to these actors, um, individual settlers as well as the Israeli state, and they will suffer no consequences for what they do. And I think we have to find these creative ways to sort of up the cost. Um, you know, it's not uh, Michael Ratner, who's the founder of um, Center for Constitutional Rights, where I work, has this idea of success without victory. You know, you may not ultimately prevail at the ends under sort of formal measures but how does how can you find success in the process and that is sort of the the space in which we have to live in considering the power dynamics of what we're all um you know yeah. what we all know so well yes i mean 
currently in this country, we're completely losing that battle. At the moment, lawfare is being waged with huge success by one side of the argument and not at all by the other side. So what, what we really need to know is how do we, how do we mount an offensive of that kind? Uh, we need to learn from you a little bit, well, really. Brian, I mean, I'm not sure that's completely right because uh, the Palestine Solidarity Campaign did successfully challenge an attempt that went to the Supreme Court here, um, whereby pension funds were going to be banned from making their own decisions about um, dis dis uh, divestment, mm -hmm. And so that was a successful bit of lawfare. I don't really like the term because no. we're, all we're trying to do is achieve peaceful change through the legal system um and uh, it's it's you know the attack that that has happened over the last decade or so on people trying to achieve change through peaceful means by calling it lawfare i find um quite repellent really mm -hmm. but we will use the law of course and all other peaceful means to seek to achieve change and accountability and mm -hmm. i think I mean, what Diala said, which I think and really as lawyers that are active in this field, I mean, maybe we're trying to convince ourselves, but I don't think we are. I think we're backed and we're and we're I, I constantly get reminded, reminded by people like Raji Surani, the um, director of the Palestinian Center for Human Rights in, in Gaza, that we have a kind of a moral and and day to day obligation as lawyers to never forget our strategic optimism, as he might call it. Mm. And we have to call out the rule of the jungle and call for the rule of the law absolutely all the time. And part of that, and I think, you know, I take what Roger says on the, so on the chin in a way, we are too often preaching to the converted, but there mm. is a value in time and again, calling out the evidence. And I'm not talking about going into the history. I'm not talking about, uh, dealing with the attacks on us on free speech to do with, um, you know, the IHRA definition on anti-Semitism. Leave that aside for a moment. The really important thing for me, for Raji, for Palestinian and pro-Palestinian activists is to tell the story of what's going on and the day-to-day -day story. We look at the, the reports just in recent days about settler violence in the West Bank. Now, the Beit Selim, who are a very successful advocacy group, we need to Every time they put something out, every time PCHR put something out, we as activists need to be telling people about that mm -hmm. and calling for accountability again and again, demanding accountability. What is, what are the, what is the Israeli military in the West Bank doing about the systemic day-to-day -day violence against Palestinians who can't go about their daily lives without being attacked? And the evidence is all there. So that's what governments need to be asked again and again. What are you as a government doing? to enable Palestinians to just take their olive crop in. What are you doing? Why are you silent in the face of these daily acts of violence? Mm. These are human rights issues. Again, it's something I've heard Roger say before, and I, I agree. We just need that human rights dialogue. And it's in our hands to keep promoting it and not always be defensive on the, on the other issues we've touched on, but be on the offensive and put these things forward. And then lawyers like me, we gather evidence to try and bring cases under the concept of a universal jurisdiction um, with some success in the past. But of course, the institutions and the governments try to close that option down, but they can't keep closing it down because they day to day, we're seeing other international criminal suspects, whether it's Syria or other jurisdictions being arrested and prosecuted in those countries. The same laws apply to Israeli suspects where there's evidence and Israeli suspects reach these jurisdictions, we need to keep pushing the governments to implement the rule of law and take these people to court. Where there's the evidence, prosecute them. And uh, so those are the kind of points that I want us to keep talking about, and the evidence is, is there to keep talking about them. Look at the Jewish nation state law in Israel. Look at what it actually says and what it does, and the kind of cases that Adal have taken, like the, the one of their lawyers who couldn't go into a public park in a fuller, um, you know, before they challenged that. And that was one of the local authorities just saying, you know, well, we can't have, this is a Jewish space. You can't have Palestinians doing that. Who knows in our societies, these daily acts of institutionalized racism that happen, um, you know, under Israeli rule. Um, and I think, I do think that we're under-informed and that our colleagues and our 
um, the people we work with, they need to be told in our workplaces um, and in the people we, we interact with, whether as lawyers or in our daily society, remind them, bore them if necessary, by telling them the facts. And I think that way we, we begin to introduce more and more prospects for change. Maybe that's um, the strategic optimism gone too far, but, <laughs> but that's what I, I see. I think you um, you uh, you're right, Daniel. And uh, Roger said before when he when he started that he you know he, he believed that a lot of people knew what was happening in Palestine. And I think um, I agree that a lot of people may know in surface of what's happening. But even on a personal level, I remember when I went in 2007 for the first time, and I thought I knew pretty much everything in Palestine. And I was so shocked to hear stories of. Uh, little kids playing football being shot at from the watchtowers by Israeli soldiers for fun. I was so shocked to see you know, the house of, of a young, of a, an old, sorry, Palestinian peasant being destroyed five, six times. I was so shocked to hear about the constant sort of raiding of houses in the middle of the night. And when I came back to Europe, I was telling this to people that sort of knew about the the Palestine issue, and they thought it was science fiction. They thought I was making things up about, you know, the abuse in Hebron and, and stuff like that. So I think it's very important to go back to the stories, and, and there is stories every day. I, I just I was reading on Haaretz, uh, the Israeli newspaper, the, the story of this 69-year-old Palestinian woman, a grandmother who uh, called Rama Dalu, who suffered a, a fatal heart attack when the Israeli soldiers invading a house at 1 a.m. in the morning last week. And this is what people don't understand, that it's not because Gaza is, being, is not being bombed that horrible stuff are not happening in, in, in Palestine, right? Um, I, I don't know if you want to... Uh, and, and also, sorry, about litigations. I mean, Daniel, I know you've been involved in so many... I mean, or tried, anyway, litigation when it comes to Israel and Palestine. But... Maybe you can comment briefly on this. I remember after Cast Leads, which was in 2008, 2009, could you tell us if you remember, I've got sort of the number in my head, but I want to make sure I get it right. So the number of cases brought to the Israeli Supreme Court and then the number of cases that were finally you know, taken on or something, which was... Oh, no, I mean, the, I don't have the statistics at hand, but uh, PCHR, uh, Armazan, lots of uh, Palestinian human rights organizations brought tried to bring private civil claims, but they're, they're barred because of uh, the access to justice is barred by a whole series of procedural bars, you know, whether or not you can uh, take a civil claim in relation to a military operation, things like that. So that, you know, access to justice for those kind of events has proved almost impossible. Um, and legal challenges to the type of uh, um, campaigns by Israeli or uh, Palestinian human rights organizations, there were a whole series of cases, as you say, that were taken to attempt to shut down the military operation for very, on various grounds and attacks on the, the legality of the siege on Gaza, all of which have failed. So the, the casebook of the Israeli Supreme Court is another part of educating people as to what has gone on. And I can talk a bit more about the war crimes cases that I've um, been working on, but I don't want to bore people with those right now. I think the most important thing is to look forward, yeah. and we can talk about the ICC maybe in a little bit later. I think Roger wants a drink. Yeah. <laughs> did you say I want a drink? You, you, you did that. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah no, no, I'm I'm fine, thank you. I, I don't need anything to drink. I'm just, but. I, so the message is: shout it from the rooftops, shout it in in the cafeteria at lunchtime, speak to people about it constantly. Never never let your attention drop, and keep talking about it all the time. About it, get the word out beyond the choir. I couldn't agree more. I'm involved in a whole bunch of legal enterprises, one of which keeps coming back in my mind. So we, I say we only because I'm paying for most of it. It's actually a family called Ziada are suing Benny Gantz through the courts in Holland at the moment. And we're, and we're, and we're going to appeal after the first whatever. And it may well happen, but it's to keep people focused on the fact that there are occasional places where you can put your money where your mouth is or put your shoulder to the wheel or talk to somebody about it and say, look, we're suing this guy for murder. 
He was standing for prime minister of Israel in the last election, okay? Why in Holland? Because you can't do it in Israel. There is no recourse to the law for the family of the murdered in Palestine. So anyway, that's a, that's is kind of a side issue, but yeah, we will, we are shouting it. And I don't also, think it's a side issue at all, Roger. These these legal attack, these legal attempts to get accountability are vital because they show the stories and they show the lack of access to justice uh, locally, and that you cannot get access to justice or any form of justice for for Palestinians locally, and that's why we're having to go. Nobody would be wandering off to courts in the Netherlands or in in the United Kingdom or in America or any other jurisdiction if it was possible to get justice domestically. So You're that's quite part right. of the story. But that, that's, that's why it's so important that the LDF, the NAAC, NACP, came forward just last week in support of the Students for Justice in Palestine at Fordham, which Diallo was talking about. Mm-hmm. All of this stuff is going on all the time, and we're getting, we're getting new information back all the time, and some of it is occasionally encouraging. And what Diallo was saying j- 10 minutes ago about the huge backlash, if you mentioned the word apartheid, when she said that, I wanted to say, not like you did 10 years ago. 10 years ago, you couldn't mention the word ever. Mm. Completely verboten. So we have moved forward. We have made huge progress. And also, Diala, or no, or you, you mentioned BDS. BDS has made huge strides. And there are huge strides being made on the campuses in the United States of America. You know, mm-hmm. the student body there. I've seen it. You know, I've, I've watched it happen in front of my eyes, and it's hugely encouraging. And we are going to reach a tipping point at some point. Sorry, I interrupted you when you were interrupting me. <laughs> I did. I was I was just trying to get you back, Roger. So, um, can I just jump in and, and, add, and, and offer something on this question of, you know, where, first of all, yes, absolutely, we've made huge strides. Um, and if you just look in the U.S., certainly, um, just last week, 12 representatives of Congress, read by Rashida Tlaib and Mark Pokin, I, I can't pronounce his name, um, uh, wrote a letter essentially calling on a shift in U.S., you know, unconditional support. Um, for Israeli policies, and that was unthinkable, you know, even three years ago. So I, I do think that there is progress. And in terms of this question of is, of do we just need to be telling the stories and shouting it on the rooftops? I think that's a very important part of the story. Like certainly, Palestinians want their stories to be told, um, but I don't think it's the whole story, right? I mean, I started my career doing this, you know, I was working with B'Tselem at the time, fresh and, and, and uh, naively out of college. And we thought that if we just, you know, filmed all of this violence that's happening in the settlements, if we just offered the evidence and took it to the Israeli military or put it on Israeli primetime TV, then we would be able to shift public opinion. And within the first week at the job, we had this like awfully traumatic footage of you know, Palestinian children being having stones thrown at them on their way home from school of a woman being called, um, you know, to, being told basically whore, go back into your house, and which was like a cage. They had to build a cage around the house to protect them from from the stones and the garbage that their their settler neighbors were throwing at them. So we thought, well, if this doesn't get anything, you know, then nothing will. And it didn't really shift anything. It, it was on primetime Israeli television. Um, but you don't just, you know, you don't just sort of tell the stories and people and people change their minds. Like you have to figure out what moves people, right? And the other thing that Palestinians have been calling for, and this is a reference to BDS, one is yes, tell our stories and center us, and don't, you know, don't don't yeah, just don't have this conversation about us without us. But two is look locally and how are you and where you are and where you're living supporting these policies and these practices that we are being subjected to. And that's the core of the call for boycott, divestment and sanctions, but it's also the core of the call for many other forms of, of, of action that people are taking locally. In the US, there's a really vibrant movement to, to connect the issues of abusive policing um, you know, the, the racist police departments that we're calling to defund and connecting that to how they're getting their training and resources 
and know-how from the Israeli military and police, right? There's a campaign called the Deadly Exchange, and that is not a legal avenue. That is purely a political base-building avenue, but a very effective one. And it's people identifying what their local targets are and how they, with the resources that they have access to, with the people that they can move, can actually change the situation. So I really want to elevate this idea of local work that's not legal. We can all be in support of it in various ways, as lawyers definitely, but as artists and public and influencers like you are, like I think that's another really important role that you play. Um, but so yes, it's 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 storytelling, but it's also action and it's local action. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can I um, can I broaden this a little bit? Of course, the pretext that uh, upon which we are all attacked for our interest in Palestinians is is anti-Semitism. Um, I'm sure. Both of you have been accused of that. I know Roger and I have. And I would like to look at that a little bit more because I think if anything is going to inspire anti-Semitism, it's this type of behavior by the Israeli government. I think this, this random spraying around of that word removes any power that it has and removes any sanctioning power that it has. You know, when you see people like Ken Loach David Miller, other, you know, the person that Roger was talking about, Jackie Walker, the various people in the Labour Party. When you accuse, see those people being accused of anti-Semitism, you cannot help but say, this is all made up. And it suddenly makes that charge uh, worthless. It's crying wolf. And so you have to think, why, why are these attacks being particularly directed at people from the left? We know there are a lot of anti-Semites in the world, and we know that generally they don't come from the left of the political spectrum. We know that most of them are on the right of the political spectrum. Why aren't they being attacked? Why, why is it that Netanyahu is making uh, friendly liaisons with, for instance, Viktor Orban in Hungary, who at the same time is running a completely blatant anti-Semitic campaign against George Soros? Why is, are those connections not being made, that we are being called the enemy for some other reason than anti-Semitism? And of course, it's transparently clear that we're being called the enemy because we question uh, what's happening in Palestine. That's all you have to do to be called anti-Semitic. So I, I was thinking, what what is this to do with this alliance with the far right? Um, I read a very interesting piece by an Israeli historian called Ziev Sternhell. Um, uh, can I read a little bit of it? I, I won't read for too long. He's the Leon Blum Professor Emeritus at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, a member of the Israel Academy of Sciences and Humanities, and an honorary member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. So he's not a rabid leftist. He wrote, this, this is going to take about two or three minutes to read, but it's worth hearing, I think. The Liberal European Union, under the leadership of France and Germany, drew conclusions both from World War II and the decolonization which followed it. Namely, the only way to ensure that the peoples of the world as a whole have a decent life is to respect human rights, and thus every human being has a natural right to freedom and independence. This is a universal right to which there are no exceptions. But Israel denies the Palestinians this right, and consequently liberal Europe protests against the occupation. There are bodies, institutions, and individuals that therefore wish to boycott the territories and the agricultural and industrial products made there. This demand is quite legitimate and has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. To push back, however, the Israeli right has enlisted the Polish and Hungarian nationalists against the liberals, and it pays in hard currency. Legit legitimation of contemporary Hungarian anti-Semitism, that's the George Soros story, and legitimation of traditional Polish anti-Semitism and absolution for the part paid by the Poles, the Poles in the extermination of the country's Jews. For the Poles and Hungarians, the Israelis have already detached themselves from their Jewish roots. 
I think this is the interesting point. They see the contemporary Israelis as a different race, and therefore Jew hatred does not apply to them, especially as the Jews no longer live among Poles and Hungarians as a national and cultural minority, as, as they did in the period between the two world wars. Moreover, Israel has become a state with which white racists in Europe can identify. Indeed, far-right Europeans feel they can learn from Israel how to deal with strangers from Africa and local Muslims. They know that for half a century now, Israel has ruled without misgivings over millions of Arabs, kept them in a permanent state of inferiority, trampled their human rights underfoot, and maintained an apartheid regime in the occupying territory, occupied territories. Within Israel itself, the extreme right-wing government dis disdains the democratic order it inherited from the hated left and the liberal right, which was buried long ago. No one understands the Hungarians and Poles better than Israel's current leaders, because no one hates the universal values of the left as much as they do. And that, for me, is the is the take home from that. It's it's part of a a kind of international anti leftism, which you see manifest also in another of Israel's great friends, Donald Trump, and uh, Bolsonaro, and all those kind of people. So it's it's in the context of a bigger picture, a kind of reactionary a reaction against liberalism, effectively, and. Uh, this is why this anti-Semitism charge is so dangerous, because it is shutting down a very important part of liberal discussion. And if, if we can't fight that, then we, I think we lose the moral validity to make any of those claims about any other situation. If we don't fight that in Israel, we have no right to fight it anywhere. Here, here. Thank you, Ryan. It's very interesting though that the, the the sword, the sort of the anti-Semitism smear sword that was wielded at the behest of the Israeli government, specifically aimed at Jeremy Corbyn because he was left-wing and he might turn into a, a political leader on the left in the United Kingdom who would actually stand up for human rights in general, but all, but specifically the rights of working people to represent themselves and to have unions and to negotiate with the powers that be and to fight back against neoliberal capitalism. So, uh, Brian's I'm really glad that you pointed all of that out and, and this correlation between, you know, what would be nice would be to believe that if you're born or if you develop over your life the idea that there's something wrong with capitalism, you're probably likely to discover that there's something good about supporting human rights. Mm -hmm. because that's what it's about at a fundamental level. Mm. Interesting. Oh, uh, this is why I come down the pub, you know. <laughs> it's not that I disagree with anything that Brian said, and obviously people will know that, uh, or may may not know. I'm 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 an Israeli anti-Zionist. My parents are Israeli anti-Zionists, and and have to face the kind of uh, attacks of being self-hating Jews and all of that. So I'm with you entirely. But my concern is part of the failure of the left is to have allowed the pro-Israel lobby to get into this ditch with them and not continually come back because the two, the two, the two groups that suffer the most from this are the true victims of anti-Semitism and we have got a rise in racism and anti-Semitism in Europe with the Brexit uh, thing in, in, in England in particular. Um, and, and, you know, religious Jews, often not Zionists, face daily attacks in, in parts of uh, London and in Manchester and other places because of the rise of racism and that they, they have lost out in this while we've been in the ditch fighting on the IHRA and this and the Palestinians have lost out in my view because it was, Diala said, you know, used an interesting phrase, I can't exactly repeat it, but you're talking a, about us but our story isn't there, you know, like we're absent from the yeah. narrative and I do feel that Whatever happened in the last three years here in England, I feel very frustrated that the story of Palestine, the pro-Israel lobby won because we weren't constantly talking about 
the story of Palestine, but also that it comes from a settler colonial project that we have to analyze and discuss regardless of what they call us. So keep discussing it, keep analyzing, keep telling the stories, keep backing legal ba uh, battles, keep backing BDS. Some of the things that Diala said, we could be talking about why it's necessary on a human rights level, as Roger said, bring it back to human rights. Why should we be supporting in this instance, in this local community, some kind of violator of human rights? Because if there's a cost to the violators of human rights, an economic cost, that they can't do business in the normal way, that local sanctions, local action makes it less attractive. And the, the great example there was, you know, if Israel can't export its arms and its uh, military training and its police training, that has an economic cost for Israel. But, you know, you've got to work over years. And this is the work of generations, sadly, because states aren't yet engaged in it, by and large. And if states do become engaged in it, we turn a corner. But for the time being, it's got to be people power and local. Local democracy can achieve something because it, the central state isn't quite as powerful as to prevent local action of the kind that Diala mentioned. Anyway, I'll pause. Like the supporters of Celtic Football Club turning up with their Palestinian flags to matches, I mean, I think sport is going to be hugely important, and I don't think it's very far down the line that we're going to stop playing soccer with Israel, and I think it will have a huge... Yeah, get on the front foot on football and everything else and be just yeah. out there making those points as I feel something that we just got to do, as well as having to fight off this, this attack on our free speech. I, I don't know if you heard, but Diala, before you go, the last call bell as, as sort of, you know, for, for last round of drinks, uh, we've got about five, six minutes left. So if you want, Diala, obviously you can start and we can start going briefly around the, the pub table um, before closing. I was just trying to move us away from the sports conversation because I was not going to be able to, <laughs> to follow up on that. Um, and and the, just to address, you know, so I, I'll say one thing. Um, yes, the um, the kind of push to smear anyone who dares speak out against Israel as anti-Semitic is, is a very real push. It is one that the Israeli government has prioritized. We have reports that they've issued openly sort of saying that this is going to be their foreign the policy priority um, in terms of passing things like the IHRA, which Daniel mentioned, and that's the International Holocaust Remembrance. Holocaust Remembrance. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, um, it's Alliance is the last. There we go. Yeah. Teamwork, um, and and it essentially, amongst many examples, it lists equates criticism of Zionism and is criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. So it's a very dangerous framework, and even the original authors of the framework um, have uh, of the definition have sort of. Uh, rung the alarm bell saying this is not how it was intended to be applied, right? So unfortunately, it's now being pushed in, at the levels of the U.S. government. Um, it's been adopted. And uh, and also private companies, right? Facebook is considering policies that are similar to the IHRA, uh, you know, to considering removing comments and Facebook posts that some comments and Facebook posts that are critical of Zionism or Zionists and Israelis um, on the assumption that they kind of fall into anti-Semitism. And so that's a very dangerous kind of path to go down. Um, I just wanted to note that... Um, one is the really significant, and uh, if, if there's Americans on this in this Zoom world, um, you know, in the U.S., it's Christian Zionism that's one of the biggest drivers of all of these policies, and um, and 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 that movement has deeply anti-Semitic roots in and of itself, and we don't talk about that enough. And I really encourage people to look at some of the research by Political Research Associates who've been writing about um, Christian Zionism and anti-Semitism, it like the the sort of white supremacist alliance. Um, with, you know, Christian Zionism. And then the other thing is to just step back a little bit and just kind of give some perspective. You know, at CCR, we do a lot of work with other movements also. You know, we don't just work on Palestine, but we support um, Black organizing, immigrants' rights organizing, um, international human rights movements. And so 
Although there are articulations of this that are unique to the Palestinian context, it is also always what power does to social justice movements and anti-racist movements. Um, you know, the use of the sort of terrorism word and the designator and the criminalization of protest is something that we're seeing rise and of concern to movements across um, uh, across communities. And I think that we're seeing that more, we saw that very clearly under Trump. We're seeing that very clearly by the kinds of legislation and the laws that are being passed in the U.S. that silence not only Palestinian advocacy and protests, but also indigenous, black, anti-pipeline, environmental protesters. And so it's important to kind of keep that perspective and also draw those connections more explicitly. I think that's where we're seeing some really really exciting base building and power building as we all realize that these struggles are interconnected. Um, and I think also just remembering, as you all have done really wonderfully, and I also just really appreciate all of the, you know, Brian and Roger, like, <laughs> you are not required to be talking about Palestinian rights and human rights, and yet you, you know, you've, you've taken a lot of fire for it. And so um, really appreciating the kind of solidarity that um, that you all and, and, and many others have exhibited. Um, and I think continuing to center Palestinians in Palestine and in the diaspora and in the refugee um, diaspora in these kinds of conversations is really, really important too. So that's my, my go around the, the bar, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jenna. Who wants to go next? I do. And I'll be very quick. I'm going back to soccer. Every Saturday or Sunday, every player in the football league takes a knee. And it used to be in support except of Black Wilfried Zaha. Can you hear me? Yeah, no, I just said, except Wilfried Zaha. Sorry, I, I, I need to say what I have to say. Um, they take a knee, and it was in support of Black Lives Matter, and now they've sort of um, taken it and said it's against racism. Well, good, but... Anybody watching this, if you watch soccer like I do, when you see anybody take a knee, they are taking a knee against Israeli apartheid. And the sooner we ramp that home through UFA and FIFA and the rest and stop playing soccer with them, the better. We want to play soccer with them, but not until they start abiding by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I've finished. Thanks, Roger. You're welcome. Daniel or, or <laughs> Daniel or Brian, you are. Um, I'm I'm happy either way, Brian. If you want to go, go ahead. You go ahead. I mean, the only thing we didn't touch on so very briefly is the International Criminal Court. So, I was going to ask. We know that. recently that um, there was important decision that uh, that there is jurisdiction of the ICC to look into the um, the alleged crimes that have been brought before the court by. Uh, Palestine and uh, Palestinian human rights organizations have provided the court with a lot of evidence, including on settlements, um, persecution, I mentioned the whole list of crimes against humanity. So there will be an investigation if it's allowed to proceed. But one of the things we have to guard against, and so uh, voters and uh, campaigners in Britain and France have to be very alive to this, is you, you, you the US may try and bring a um, resolution under Chapter 7 and say, laugh, I mean, we would laugh at this, that somehow the peace process is going to be endangered by the International Criminal Court going about its job of investigating um, international crimes of the most heinous kind, that somehow uh, there's some kind of peace process this is going to interfere with. I mean, it's a very sick joke, but the risk is that there is a resolution that bars the court while the peace process, so-called, mm -hmm. Um, is going to be allowed to continue. So we have to make sure that we campaign against any such attempt at the Security Council to block the job of the International Criminal Court. And we have to support the International Criminal Court in its role in all of these jurisdictions that it's taking, including, of course, uh, the Palestine case. Mm. Yes, um, just I, I realise we have to finish, but could I just say that we in this country we've had a history of wrongful imprisonment of, for instance, Irish people who didn't bomb places, got wrongfully imprisoned. And it's always been a cause of outrage in England when it was discovered that people were wrongly, wrongfully imprisoned. What we have here is a situation where about 6 million people have been wrongfully imprisoned and are still wrongfully imprisoned and are 
being told that they're guilty all the time. So I think we we really should appeal to just our, our humanity, our common humanity, and say this is absolutely unacceptable. It's easy for us living quite nice lives in our other countries to forget that this is going on every day in every part of Palestine, and people's lives are just frittering away. There are people who've been who've lived their whole lives now under occupation, many of them. There are people who've never left Gaza, teenagers who've never been out of that little tiny piece of land because they can't leave it. So I think we could talk about talk that side of the story as well a little bit, just remind people that this is about compassion too. Thank you, Brian. And, and, and again, uh, thanks to the four of you for, for, for joining this, this live chat. Uh, next time, inshallah, we can do it down the pub, uh, watching Arsenal. Um, but um, I just wanted to briefly mention a few things. We've mentioned BDS a few times. For the people watching that don't know what BDS is, BDS stands for Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions. You can find um, all the information on their website, bdsmovement.com. Um, we also mentioned Mark Lemont Hill. He's a comrade, a book called Except for Palestine, The Limits of Progressive Politics. And the co-author of the book is called Michel Plitnik. So uh, we can put the links down uh, the, you know, the description of the chat. So again, uh, Brian, Roger, Diala, Daniel, huge thanks for this. We're going to close uh, the pub now because uh, it's our pub. And, um, and yeah, we will be back in the pub on April 15th with um, Naomi Klein, who's going to join us and, um, and talk about lots of interesting things once again. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Bye, everyone. Esta longuita cuando volverá Han pasado ya seis cosechas En el campo solo hay rastrojo Con tu partida has dejado en mi alma solo rojos Y a la rama de los sauces se inclinaron más al río ¿Para dónde marcharía? Esta longuita cuando volverá Esta longuita cuando volverás